0: thesis. Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter, Kate, for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. It is a cold and snowy day in Cleveland, Ohio. So my mind and our conversation is going to take us to somewhere else. Somewhere with incredible wine, incredible food, incredible history. I imagine it's very sunny there. I imagine it's in the 70s and 80s. The beaches are beautiful. And I'm thinking about Italy. And today's guest is Emilio Iodice. And he is many things. He is a professor. He is an author. He has the number one book for nonfiction on the Wall Street Journal's list right now. And we're going to explore that. But Emilio, uh, you... I'm so excited for this conversation and to get to know you a little bit, so maybe tell our listeners a little
1: bit about you, and then we'll jump in. Thank you, uh, Scott. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, I'm just a kid from New York City, uh, born and raised uh, in in the Bronx, educated at Fordham University, did my graduate work at the City University of New York and George Washington University. Great. Great. I uh, studied uh, economics, was an economist for the U.S. government, worked uh, uh, also for uh, the executive office of the president through uh, a number of administrations, went into the diplomatic corps, uh, made the list of uh, ambassadors uh, as my final posting, which was in Paris, and uh, went into the private sector, uh, worked for a major multinational as VP, made a lot of money, which is a good thing, then uh, went out to teach which I always wanted to do, taught leadership at uh, Trinity College. And then it, uh, uh became the director of the uh, Loyola University Chicago Rome Center and also taught leadership there. I'm teaching leadership here in Rome, which is wonderful. And you're right, it's sunny and beautiful and the food is, is great. <laughs> I'm, uh, I've been a best-selling, best-selling author now for about a, a decade. I've written uh, about uh, 10 books. And my latest book, The Commander-in-Chief, is, uh, as you said, the number one bestseller on the Wall Street Journal nonfiction list. And in fact, it's past the memoirs and stories of uh, major luminaries who have published books just recently. So it's a very interesting time and the book is successful and the book was a lot of fun to write. And it's uh, one that's uh, being used extensively also in universities right now as part of leadership courses, plus courses that deal with uh, political history, especially American history, because the book is about presidential history and the leadership lessons that we learn from U.S. presidents. And uh, that book, by the way, is also in Italian and uh, both in English and other languages, it's being used as a primer for prime ministers and chiefs of state in democracies, and that's wow. what it's about: how to run a democracy, how to be a good president, prime minister of a democracy, of a freedom-loving nation.
0: Emilio, I'm out, so I want to get to the book, I, but you are a, a prolific author. Can you take us through that process? What is it that works for you?
1: What works for me is ideas. I I, um, I, I love to come up with new ideas and i explore new ideas with people especially in the field of leadership and my specialty is to use lessons of history to teach us what we need to do today to be good leaders and how those lessons from history will help us deal with problems of the future challenges of the future Uh, and i think this is really really important especially now with what our country will be facing In the future, in the near future.
0: Let's let's jump into let's jump into some themes from the book. What were some what were some insights, some ahas that you experienced in the process of doing the research and doing the writing?
1: Well, what I wanted to do was explore first of all what were the the major characteristics of our most successful presidents. Great, uh, and how they showed those characteristics through decisions and actions on their part. But I also discovered that none of our presidents, our major leaders, have been saints uh, mm. in the White House. Uh, at the same time, we're not tolerating any sinners, but none of them have really been saints. And we have to take that in mind and, and also understand the context of the time. So I, uh, I write about that in the book. I write about the shortcomings and the weaknesses, as well as their, the, their strength and power their power to persuade, to communicate, and to make critical decisions at difficult times. The themes run through the concept of how important character is, yeah. all the way to the ability to communicate at all levels. And uh, and I try to show this through uh, not all of our 46, 45 presidents. Now we have a 46th one coming up, but I, I show it through, I would say, about half of them. Who I felt were the most indicative, in terms of having those basic qualities that we really need in leaders, and it's a primer. It's a primer and a classic for leadership in general. Yeah, talk about talk about character.
0: Who who are some individuals that, based on your research, really emerged for you as men of character?
1: The, the key men of character, I, I would say that uh, we can say are. Our examples, of course, we begin with Lincoln. Okay. Uh, Lincoln uh, was the icon and was the stereotype. In other words, those things that we attribute to Lincoln in terms of qualities were real. Yeah. Uh, They weren't just image, they were real. He was humble, Uh, he had emotional intelligence, he was honest, Uh, he had a high sense of integrity and also uh, had a great difficulty with telling something that wasn't true. Mm. These qualities uh, uh, of character are absolutely essential uh, because they set the tone, they set the example it, with followers. And, you know, when it comes to followers, uh, a president also has to develop a brain trust. Yeah. And that brain trust becomes contagious in terms of character. A president who is honest, who is strong, who is determined, who is a decision maker, Well, he's the example and sets the tone for his cabinet.
0: Yeah. So Lincoln, Lincoln stands out. Who else? Theodore Roosevelt. uh,
1: Okay. uh, Also, uh, uh, probably this is why uh, Roosevelt, Jefferson, and Washington, and Lincoln are on Mount Rushmore. It was Mm. easy to put those four up there. But but you see with uh, Theodore Roosevelt, here you have a 360-degree individual in the White House.
0: Here's a man
1: who reads a book a day who's written 35 of his own books, who's a conservationist, who's a a linguist. He spoke a a number of different languages. He uh, was a technologist. He loved new technology, a visionary, uh, talked about, wrote about the future constantly, and was a solid and clear decision maker and was a splendid politician, both on domestic and international affairs. Wow. So so you you see Theodore Roosevelt really was uh, the complete president in many ways. And uh, I, I recommend anybody who's interested in, in leadership and presidential history uh, to read more about him. Uh, there are a number of great books that have been written about him. It's fascinating. It's a fascinating life. Yeah. So so Theodore Roosevelt is another example. Well,
0: and you, and you, I would love for you to define 360 degree.
1: I talk about, again, having character, having the ability to communicate, having energy and enthusiasm and having the ability to persuade others. Uh, you know, a president really has to be constantly selling yeah. concepts, ideas, and, and be able to persuade people of, uh, at all levels. Roosevelt had that, uh, that ability. And, and also he had this amazing uh, ability to search for new ideas. He was the first president to ride in an automobile. He put telephones in the White House. He was the first president to fly a plane. He sat in the, the Wright brothers' plane, even, and it crashed, by the way. <laughs> it crashed, and he knew it was going to crash, but he took the risk. And of course, uh, he uh, dug the Panama Canal. You see a man who uh, understands military history. He was a great commander in chief. He used the bully pulpit. He won the, the Nobel Prize, by the way, for peace. And ultimately, he was given the Congressional Medal of Honor posthumously. That's what I call a 360-degree president.
0: I love it. So we got this this solid foundation of character. We've got this 360 concept of the 360 degrees. And then you also discuss communication at all levels. Now, you've seen this. You've been in the White House as this is unfolding. Yes. Talk about communication at all levels. I, I'm, I'm excited to, to hear about your experiences and your perspectives there.
1: By by that I mean that uh, anyone could understand the message of a president, and, and yeah. this is where I felt John Kennedy had this magnificent quality. This we call it charisma, uh, but it, it's the ability for the people at all levels, from uh, from someone who was a, a hard hat working class uh, individual like some of the my relatives and friends who came over from Italy. They loved John Kennedy because they could understand what he was talking about. It was simple. It was clear. But so could the Wall Street broker. Uh, So could the bishop. Uh, So could the housewife. They could understand clearly the message and the vision as well. The vision. Uh, This is really important. Ronald Reagan had this quality. Reagan cast this vision of where America should be going, how it should get there as well. Uh, and this vision was something that people could could feel, they could touch. Yeah. And that's what we talk about when we say communication at all levels.
0: Well, I, I think of, I'm going back to Lincoln real, real quickly, but in some of what I've read about Lincoln is he he could do that beautifully. He could stand in front of a group of farmers and help them understand a, a complex issue because he was so brilliant at communicating in a way that worked at all levels, right?
1: Absolutely, uh, Lincoln was amazing. You know, he was really a a prairie lawyer, so he came from from the uh, the frontier. But he was able to live in uh, in Illinois uh, as a successful lawyer, and then also transform himself into a chief executive. And he relished the opportunity to talk to uh, uh, to anyone, even his adversaries. Uh, there's a legendary story, and I haven't been able to. To check it out, but Lincoln went to see his mother, uh, his, actually his stepmother, who raised him, right after he was elected. He felt he want, he needed to do this. I believe she lived in Kentucky at okay. the time, so he goes there and he sees her and uh, he pays homage to her. And I know he he took care of her, provided an income for this poor woman for the rest of her life. As he leaves, he meet, meets a boyhood friend. You know, the, the Kentucky was a slave state. Now, Lincoln is president, and Lincoln extends his hand to his boyhood friend. And the man says, I'll never shake your hand. I hate you. And I never will agree with anything that you agree with. Yeah. And Lincoln said, you know, I'm willing to die for your right to be wrong. Wow. Imagine the strength in a phrase like that. And, and Lincoln realized that at the end, we had to bind up the nation's wounds. Even that part of the nation that we felt were wrong. Yeah. Uh, and we had to fight with them, but we had to bring them all back together again as one people. He had the ability to talk with the head of the uh, Herald Tribune uh, on, on the same level as he did with the, with the farmer who would knock on his door in the White House and ask for help and advice.
0: Yeah, He was amazing
1: in, in that really amazing. So Emilio, let's let's go to
0: decision making for a little bit. And I'd love to get your insights on this because it's difficult when you're in a role like president to be considered a person of character by all. There were factions of people who would not in their lived experience See Lincoln, your example just now, as a man of character, right? the The young man in Kentucky that you were just speaking of. So it's it's challenging because these individuals are faced with decisions that are in some cases horrible decisions to have to make. They involve life and death. They in inlo- law they involve death of many at, it, at the benefit of the whole in some cases. So how do you think about that? What did you What did you find out about on that front, or? Based on your experience, what have you witnessed and what have you seen when it comes to these really gnarly, terrible, complex decisions that these individuals have to make?
1: These decisions, from my experience, are not made capriciously. Yeah. Uh, And and this is what I I learned uh, about uh, America uh, and especially our American leaders, leaders that have to send people into harm's way. They think about it. Carefully, I, I won't mention a name. Yeah, but uh, I'll mention a case uh, where a bombing had to happen. It was a strike against a dictator uh, to teach a lesson. And at the time, our chief executive was concerned not so much with with the building that was going to be attacked, but Number one, that that particular leader was out of that building at the time. Mm. And secondly, that as little bloodshed would be, would be shed as possible. Uh, the guards that guarded the palace, uh, it had to be attacked when those guards were changing so that there was an interval of perhaps minutes when there were fewer people there. Wow. So this, this was part of the thinking going on before this very important decision was made. Uh, But but let's go even further than that. That was was one thing. But let's let's go into Harry Truman's mind. I I did a lot of research on this uh, just recently and it's an article that's on my website, uh, iodizedbooks.com. And it's going to be published in the Journal of Values-Based Leadership very shortly. Harry Truman, was vice president for 80 days and he knew very few things about what was actually happening uh, in terms of top secrets of world war ii including the manhattan project he was briefed on it as soon as franklin roosevelt died wow okay and here this man in april april 12 1945 becomes president and less than three months later in august uh, with Europe having uh, uh, been vanquished. So we had VE Day, but now we had the war in the Pacific that was still raging. Yeah. This was August 1945. This man was in office now three months. And Okinawa had occurred, which was one of the bloodiest battles in the, in the Pacific. And his advisors come to him and say, Mr. President, we have to invade Japan. We need a million soldiers to do it. Half of them may become casualties. Wow. Also, we may kill millions of Japanese in house-to-house fighting. The kamikaze attacks had a great deal of influence on Truman and his uh, military leaders at the time. Uh, the head of the of the kamikazes, this general at the time said that 20 million Japanese would commit suicide if the Allies invaded Japan. Wow. Here's this man now who has been given the atom bomb as his his latest weapon. And he asked his advisors, if we use this Japanese, sue for peace. Will they agree to peace? And they said, we hope so. But we're not sure. Yeah. Ultimately, he made the decision to drop the first atom bomb. And he waited and asked the Japanese after that, would they agree to peace? No.
0: Wow. I didn't know this part of the story.
1: He had to drop the second one before the emperor was convinced that they could no longer continue to fight. So I wrote about this in the book. And uh, what a difficult decision it was for Truman. He lived with it. And he, uh, he knew that he, the genie was out of the bottle with atomic energy, yep. but he was the same president who also created the Atomic Energy Commission for the peaceful use of atomic energy in the world. And Truman uh, made some very, very important decisions. He should really should be ranked among the 10 greatest. Uh, he created NATO. Of course, he was the man who implemented the United Nations and so forth. When it came to making decisions, he wasn't afraid. He listened to his advisors, didn't always agree with them, but he listened carefully and he made his decisions based on facts. And uh, I put myself in his shoes uh, as I was writing the book and I felt this was a real commander in chief with the best possible information he could receive. He made these critical decisions.
0: Well, I'm hearing character. I'm hearing communicator. I'm hearing decision maker. Are there other, other attributes of these effective commanders-in-chief?
1: I'd like to dwell for a moment on what I would call emotional intelligence. Sure. Emotional intelligence is complex, but our greatest leaders had it. The, the two Roosevelt's, Theodore and Franklin, had, in my view, enormous emotional intelligence. And by, by that, I mean uh, self-restraint, number one. Yeah. They, under very difficult conditions... Held on to their faculties. Hmm. Uh, you can imagine FDR, and I write about that in the book uh, his paralysis. You know, so few people dwell on the fact during his time that he couldn't get up from a table. Yeah. He um, couldn't go to the bathroom alone. He had to be helped. He even couldn't get into bed by himself. So this man was paralyzed from the waist down, but Those people who dealt with him never dwelt on that particular issue. Because of his strength of character and his emotional intelligence, that was something that was a a byproduct of his existence, but it wasn't his existence. It wasn't what made him who he was. It was only a part of his character, and it was one of those things that gave him empathy and compassion, which is also part of emotional intelligence. I'll give you an example of of this kind of power, where even under the most difficult conditions, a president stays focused. Uh, in yeah. the movie uh, Pearl Harbor, there's a clip, and I and I I've tried to research to find out if this actually happened. And in a number of books uh, that I found, they say that it had. But let me describe it, assuming that it did. Sure. Right after. Pearl Harbor, we have the the declaration of war of Nazi Germany against the United States and also a fascist Italy. And now FDR brings around the table his military leaders. And he says, I want to report on where we are. Half of the fleet was gone at Pearl Harbor. So the Pacific fleet is decimated. We can't make war in the Pacific, according to them. Our Uh, Our soldiers are not trained. We neglected for years to give them the proper training for war. And now we we need millions of recruits. And yet they're not ready. We don't have the material. We don't have the tanks. We don't have the artillery. We don't have the planes to fight a war. So they implied to the president, perhaps it would be better to sue for peace. Roosevelt said no. I want to bomb Tokyo. And they said, Hmm. Mr. President, that's impossible. He said, I want to bomb Tokyo. I want to bring the war to the Japanese. I want them to know what they've done and that they will not get away with this. They will pay for it. And they said, Mr. President, we cannot do it. It's impossible. So FDR literally grabbed the two sides of his chair and he raised him up. Himself up and he stood before them and said, Listen, if I can do this, you could bomb Tokyo and you can win this war. Wow. So the power of that man made an impression on these these men who had to carry out the great responsibility of victory. And because of him, and of course the team that he built, and the people that he selected, MacArthur. Eisenhower, Marshall, to run our war, we were successful because of his great brain trust and his emotional intelligence. So that's another example of how emotional intelligence plays into all of this. It is so, so very important for a president. And I'll leave you with one last thought. Sure. Intelligence also requires that a president not dwell on revenge political revenge, that not only diminishes the office, but also diminishes the individual. Mm. There was probably no president who was uh, criticized more, even unjustly, uh, by any measure, than Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was constantly, constantly criticized by the press, uh, by his equals in in the political establishment, by his own party. Sure. Constantly. Constantly all the way up to the end, including having a daily letter arrive, threatening assassination. So here's Lincoln who doesn't care about revenge and getting uh, back at those people who said so many lies about him. The most he would do was, was write a letter that he was going to send to them and then put it in a drawer and never mail it. But uh, he had the strength of character to be wise enough to not waste energy on that kind of activity. And not all of our presidents have been that strong as Abraham Lincoln was.
0: So complex, so difficult, right? I mean, I also think of Mandela, the stories of Mandela after he assumed the presidency and him, you know, extending an olive branch and the importance of that. Uh, again, you can go to the team of rivals with Lincoln. You can go to some of these other individuals who had the ability to rise above all of that noise for the betterment of the whole. But to your point, so incredibly difficult to do, especially in this in this context. And I'd love to get your perspective there. So at least how I'm I'm kind of reading the context right now, and and I'm I'm going to maybe go about fifty thousand feet, and I'm specifically speaking of of United States so, so we've got we've got digitization, globalization. We've got some some systemic racism issues in our in our urban communities. We've got many of our rural communities are losing jobs left and right. Walmart may be the largest employer in town or the prison. And mm-hmm. we've got a media that is outwardly biased and literally creating their own narratives about reality. How does a president in this context begin to? How, how does an individual work above all of that noise? What are some thoughts you have on that question?
1: Well, first of all, I would say cancel his Twitter account. <laughs> uh, that would be the first thing I, w- I, I would suggest. Uh, I I, um, I don't think it's uh, uh, it's a good thing to do. And I don't think it's a, it's a good way to communicate. But then again, I may be a dinosaur in that regard. I, I don't believe a president who has to focus on bigger and more important issues should have time to get up at three o'clock in the morning to send out messages to a, a base of people that voted for him. I, I don't think that's necessary and required. So that that's my first element of advice.
0: Sure.
1: Uh, the second one would be, I think, to, to sincerely try to reach out to those people who didn't vote for him uh, at all levels and and to communicate with them and try to understand better what problems they face uh, and why him and his party have not been able to address those issues Yeah, uh, in particular. Uh, I'll give you a quick example. When I was growing up as a kid, my father was a, a union man. He was a longshoreman and he was a devoted Democrat why because he said the democratic party is for the working person Mm. Uh, and anybody who is a union person uh, should of course vote for the democrats because the democrats relate to them they relate to the common person my father used to say the democrats are a big circus they they encompass everybody but especially those people who uh, uh, are the, the the middle and lower classes well i'm not sure that's the case anymore. Reading the New York Times and elsewhere, the image of the Democratic Party today is that of uh, elites—those people who are extremely well-educated, wealthy, live in bubbles like most of us, yeah—and um, and don't face the same challenges as others, especially financial challenges. Well, I think uh, we need a reevaluation within the Democratic Party uh, and within the presidency of how we deal with those people—those yes. people who feel. Disenfranchised. So that would be my second point to him. Right. Uh, begin focusing on that. And third, begin showing a, a sense of not only compassion, uh, which I think is very, very important, but empathy. Empathy for, for everyone. Yeah. This is really, really essential. I, I, I saw a clip uh, that was very moving where he was talking with some Muslim women. And he said, during my presidency, no one will be excluded and that your faith will be as respected as anyone else. Hmm. I think he needs to pursue this in great depth. Uh, I, I would suggest that he have a religious advisor uh, in the White House, as well as an historian and a scientific advisor. These roles, which have been discarded over the years, uh, are absolutely essential to have a well-functioning White House that's clearly in tuned with the direction of of the country. And I could tell you chapter and verse what each and every one of them should be doing. But that's the advice i give to the president right now, those three or four points.
0: Well, it's a complex complex role, incredibly complex, probably the most complex role.
1: (laughs) It it is. Uh, And I lay that out in the beginning of the book, the, the role... Of the president of the United States as not only uh, commander-in-chief, but chief of state, chief of his party, chief of diplomacy, a uh, chief of the public interest, the chief legislator of our country as well. All these roles are in one particular office, and uh, they're very, very challenging, uh, as you said, and very complicated. Uh, neither, neither one of those roles can be taken for granted, but the Constitution that the people of the country have entrusted themselves uh, to that one particular office, which is the only office that all the people of the country vote for.
0: Wow. Professor, good stuff. I'm so excited to have had this conversation with you. And I've learned. I've learned a lot. And and I want to go read about Teddy Roosevelt. I'm going to after we're done, I'm going to get on Amazon and I'm going to order a biography of Teddy Roosevelt, because I want to explore that further. Now, what are you reading? What are you streaming? What are you listening to that I can share with our listeners?
1: Well, right now, uh, I'm uh, unfortunately, I read a, a whole series of books, and uh, I'm actually writing a new book. Well, let, let me tell you about the new book, because the new book um, has had a lot to do with what I've been um, reading, I've been reading a lot about World War II and uh, it's it's amazing the fertile ground that World War II has left us with so much anecdotal information. So I I decided to write a book based on true stories that's really a a novel. The book is called Liberation. It'll come out in January and uh, I hope it's as successful as my, my last book. But I read a whole series of memoirs of, uh, of people who went through World War II, in particular, soldiers, wow. German soldiers and Allied soldiers. And it's amazing how these two groups thought the same way, had the same fears, had so many, had so many similar experiences, and all wanted the same thing. Yep. They all wanted peace and to go back home. Yep. So I, I, I read their stories And I've read the stories of also people who were partisans in World War II, fought for justice and truth against fascism and Nazism. Tremendously courageous people. Uh, They'll be featured in my new book. Uh, Their story, which is, as I said, comes from real life. I received the skeleton of those stories from the protagonists themselves, from the people who actually experienced it. And I fleshed it out in the form of a of an historical novel. So I suggest that more people, especially young people, try to understand the trauma of a war, uh, what war is all about, because what we're experiencing right now with this virus is quite similar. Huh. And the way we're attacking it now with the vaccine is very similar to the Manhattan Project. It, it, we're devoting the same kind of effort, resources and spirit. and we're going to be successful and uh, next year is going to be a a very important year for America and the world.
0: I agree. I agree. Well, sir, thank you so much for your time today. It was a pleasure meeting you. I'm excited to have you on again after the new book comes out, everyone. You can find all kinds of resources about Emilio in the show notes. So be sure to look there and uh, thanks for the work that you do. We really, really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. We have to work to change the world, Scott.
0: Thank you. God bless
1: you for all that you're doing as well. Thank you.
0: Okay. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. You too. Thanks, Scott. I left my conversation with Emilio excited, energized, enthused with more on my to-do list. Uh, There's just too much fun stuff to learn, to learn about. But something I'm going to walk away with here is the importance of history. I mean, bottom line, I mean, I spend so much of my time thinking and reading about leadership and concepts that have to do with that. I don't always look to leaders, history, for some of those stories and some of that inspiration. I've been watching a little bit of The Crown lately, like many others. And again, the, I just watch that series and it's leadership lessons all over the place. So history. 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 Now, on my holiday list of hopeful gifts went Emilio's book, Commander in Chief. And I hope each of you also place that on your list. I think what we discussed, there's a lot to learn. There's some incredible stories. And then, of course, I think there's going to be an opportunity to dig even deeper as he has done on some of these individuals. Emilio, thank you for the work that you do, sir. Be well, everybody. Take care. I hope to see you back soon. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.